This is an ABC podcast. We don't have a federal ICAC, but LNL proffers something much better. Laura Norda, Laura, and Laura Tingle will be joining me in just a few seconds. Afterwards, Madia Azal is coming back to the program to update us on the uh, political turmoil in Pakistan. And then uh, we'll be joined once more by Joan Beaumont to give us the, the real story of Australia's Great Depression. But first, be upstanding for Laura. Big week for you. It's a very big week, Philip. Could all, it's all happening. We've got the budget and they may even call the election this week. Yeah, well, that's the type we hear something good. Is there any chance that Scott and Josh can turn their ship around and uh, produce an election winner out of their hat tomorrow? Well... It's sort of one of those traditions that we always sort of say, "Will this be, you know, the uh, kickstart or the, you know, the reboot or whatever in a budget?" In general, it doesn't happen. Um, it probably can't hurt, depending on how much money they throw around. Without a doubt, um, cost of living has become a real top of mind issue for people. Uh, it's really hurting uh, petrol prices, house prices all sorts of childcare uh, costs, all of these things are really hurting people. So if the government does something that looks like it's addressing those issues, that won't uh, go astray. But, um, you know, it, it, the problem, I think, is that um, particularly around the PM, there is there are such sort of set views of, of him now that nothing that the government does is going to transform the way they view the government. It might sort of soften around the edges. But uh, surely, with all this focus on the cost of living, we'll be able to point the finger of blame at uh, at Putin and uh, fix it by cutting fuel excise. Well, that will certainly uh, help. Um, you know, the, the fact that uh, the U- Ukraine has be sort of that Ukraine has become sort of this sort of uh, the obvious reason why petrol prices have gone up, Philip. But I mean. Cost of living was a big issue at the 2019 election. Um, the, you know, we are in an era when uh, real wages have been growing slower than an exceptionally low rate of inflation for several years, or even more in, for some workers. Uh, so it's 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 an issue that's just been there. The the, uh, the impact of petrol prices from Ukraine is just really sort of uh, sort of uh, given it extra extra texture, and as you say, it gives them an excuse. But people want something be, to be done about it. And the sheer size of the increase in petrol prices is such that it's pretty hard for any government to offer something really substantive that helps. So, you know, we're seeing this uh, speculation about a, a cut in the excise for, say, six months in the hope that things settle down in Ukraine after that. Um, and also some um, once-off cash rebates, which have become a regular feature of the budget uh, in recent years, there was a as an energy rebate last time as a one-off payment to low-income households, and they're talking about something similar this time round. So, you know, it's a, it's a combination of various sort of factors which will be looking like they're you know that they're at least hearing voters. I'm talking to Laura and Ora, Laura, and talking about uh, subsidies and money and stuff. It's uh, the government still handing out big biggies to the fossil fuel companies. Oh, they're handing out big bickies all around the place, Philip. Um, though I've got to say one rather interesting development today was um, there was a, uh, a Liberal-led uh, Senate uh, group committee which knocked back the government's attempts to get the uh, Renewable Energy Agency to be able to invest in, you know, said fossil fuels. Uh, this was led by uh, the chair of the committee, uh, Conchetta Fervanti wells who, of course... Uh, rather lost out in um, the pre-selection brawl that's been going on for months in New South Wales on the weekend and has been dumped from a winnable spot on the Senate ticket. But uh, that would 
that that's a bit of a coincidence, but um, she is, uh, she's always been a stickler for details and she basically went through what is the scrutiny of committee, uh, scrutiny of legislation committee and said, look, um, you know, what you're saying in the uh, fine text of the legislation uh, doesn't actually stack up. So they've not, she's knocked them back. So I don't think that will actually get through before the election. Staying on the issue of uh, the views of women, we saw Grace Tame, of course, Brittany Higgins, group of high profile women launch that campaign asking the government to do better by women. Anything in the budget for women? Well, I think the thing that will be crucial here, Philip, I think is childcare. Um, we haven't heard a lot yet about what the government is going to do about this. Labor's talked very big about childcare and it's certainly, once again, it's a cost of living issue, but it's also one that's identified as, you know, a, a key factor in uh, allowing women to get into the workforce uh, and and in a way which they can afford, where they, they're not basically paying to go to work because of the exorbitant childcare fee. So if uh, I, I'm anticipating that the government's going to have to do something about childcare. Labor sort of sort of signalled it will make it almost universally free, though it hasn't actually specified how that would work. And, you know, we still don't know the details of that, but it's got to be a huge issue during the election campaign. I, I'm very puzzled by money. I don't understand it at all. And the government have announced nearly $18 billion on these infrastructure programs all over Shazam. the place. So much money, Philip. It is a lot of money, but where's it all coming from? Because, you know, they're also announcing billions on defence spending. Where does the... Who makes the dosh? Well, Philip, I, you know, far, far be it from us to be cynical, but I would point out that a lot of these projects are either a very long way away or uh, have uh, quite a lot of asterisks attached to them in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, they still have to have uh, business plans developed for them and things. For example, the Prime Minister announced, or it might have been Barnaby Joyce actually, announced this big dam in North Queensland last week, which is going to be $6 billion. <laughs> but uh, there actually isn't a business plan for it yet. And it's a, it's a dam that um, has been sort of proposed for 80 years and always eventually people go, nah, that's not going to work. And I think a sign that it's probably not all that... Uh, stronger proposal, shall we say, is the fact that Bob Catter, who is one of the world's greatest advocates for dams in North Queensland, thinks that the scheme that the government's proposing is a dud. So if, if you hear a lot of these announcements, a lot of this stuff is for spending beyond the four years of the budget forecasts, so it doesn't show up in the numbers, so you can basically promise anything you like. Um, some of the other stuff you know, uh, is going to be interesting. They announced lots of infrastructure in New South Wales. Uh, and including, um, you know, making m much of the progress on the Western Sydney Airport, which is, you know, a, a, you know, a jolly good thing. But at, this is at the same time when the did, New South Wales government's glimpse, been... Did I glimpse the familiar figure of our Prime Minister? Yes. On with, a bulldozer? With, and a very area. large truck, Philip, a very large truck with a, with high-vis and a hard hat. Uh, but the problem How is... How does he find the time? I mean, that man is just a, a mountain of energy. Well, it's, you'd think he'd be very busy running the country rather than this running around to these situations and working on them all. But I think the interesting thing about this, Philip, is, uh, and this shows the, the problem with, I mean, infrastructure's great, but uh, somebody has observed politically, you know, the government's always sort of saying, oh, well, let's do infrastructure as a sort of sign of trying to do something about the economy, whereas it's actually the care economy. It's areas like aged care, like childcare, like the NDIS, where all the jobs really need to be and where they've got to actually spend some money and, you know, we're yet to see that. But I just wanted to make the point about infrastructure. Uh, at the same time, they're announcing more infrastructure projects in New South Wales, for example. The New South Wales government has today been shelving or uh, delaying a lot of its projects because it just doesn't have enough workers to actually work on them. Now, climate change is going to be a huge issue for the government in a number of key seats in New South Wales and Victoria, oh, and in WA, where a bunch of independents will be running, many of them backed by that group called uh, Climate 200, convened by um, Simon Holmes Accord. In New South Wales, they've been in a pickle trying to pick when they'll uh, pre-select. Have they sorted all that out yet? 
It's gradually being sorted out, Philip. They're gradually filling in um, the pre-selection holes. Um, there are still a few, which is fairly staggering given um, we're sort of possibly only days before the election is called. Um, but uh, there was a breakthrough on the weekend on the uh, Liberal side of politics in New South Wales. Essentially, um, the, the branches caved to the federal executive uh, and and the Prime Minister and the Premier will uh, sort out the final pre-selections. But it's extraordinary that in seats like Warringah, which is, is where Zali Stegall beat Tony Abbott, um, you know, there's been this terrible uh, difficulty in actually uh, sorting out candidates. Speaking of meaningful action on climate change, this is something Pacific Islanders have been calling Australia to act on for yonks. As you know, the region's been hugely hit by COVID as well. Are we, it's no surprise, therefore, that some are turning to do deals with China? Well, it's not. It's not a surprise at all. It's been, it's been on the cards for a long time. Uh, I mean, we cut back our uh, aid to the Pacific for a, a substantial period of time, but more than anything else, it's been the sort of disdain with which we've regarded the Pacific's you know, existential alarm about climate change and the impact uh, it was having on their homes uh, that has really uh, created such disillusion uh, in Australia. Uh, sorry, disillusion about Australia and the Pacific. And, uh, you know, suddenly we find that uh, while we've, we're spending, we're prospectively spending, you know, billions of dollars uh, to build these submarines at some stage in the future that we can park off uh, China and the South China Sea in a forward position, China's actually going to be building potentially naval bases in both Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, and uh, we, we, you know, we seem to be being taken by surprise by it, Philip. On Wednesday, Eleanor will take a deeper look at Pacific aid and the uh, seeming decoupling of aid from foreign policy approaches to defence. Look, circling back to the point you made at the beginning, people have made their minds up about Scott Morrison, and it reminds me a bit of the way people made their minds up about uh, John Howard in his uh, latter days. Is anyone actually listening to ScoMo? Look, I don't think people are listening much to politics at all these days. I think that's a significant change over time from, uh, say, the, the John Howard demise in 2007 or even uh, the Paul Keating demise in uh, 1996. People aren't really listening. You know, a lot of the stories that uh, might engage people who are politically interested just don't wash at all. People aren't watching the news or, they, or they, they're getting very selective news on social media. But without a doubt, all the focus groups uh, and uh, the quantitative polling all suggest that the Prime Minister has a real credibility problem. Basically, you know, phrases that come up are things like, you know, you can't believe a thing he says. Um, the, the big issue I think now is whether, uh, you know, the, the question of the fact that people don't know a lot about Anthony Albanese, who is doing splendidly well in the, in the polls, um, considering that apparently nobody knows who he is, but... You know, the, I think it'll come down to a question of whether they can tear down, uh, you know, or raise questions in people's minds about Anthony Albanese and Labor. I don't think Anthony Albanese is uh, Scott Morrison's biggest enemy. His big enemy is himself. <laughs> Look at the Hillsong nonsense. Well, it it it, it sort of uh, continues to defy belief how he sort of just keeps getting himself, you know, into so many troubles and uh, just, uh, you know, just saying things which you know everybody can see aren't true, uh, and also just creating sort of you know, crises where there don't have to be some, or just not dealing with issues which you would think, even if he had no intention of doing something about, like the Lismore floods, you'd have pictures of yourself looking very busy and being concerned about. It's it's a bit of a mystery to a lot of his colleagues as well as the rest of us. <laughs> The voice of Laura Norder, Laura, Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent for 7.30. Next week, uh, we'll no doubt unpack the opposition's uh, budget reply speech. We're expecting to hear Labor's own infrastructure plan, plus their plan to embrace uh, renewable energy to support the manufacturing industry and to improve the cost of child care. But now, let's turn to political turmoil somewhere else in Pakistan.
Despite my uh, passionate disconcern or unconcern with sport, even I remember that in 2018, the cricket celebrity Imran Khan became Prime Minister of Pakistan. Now he, he's facing the biggest challenge of his career with a, a no-confidence vote due to being tabled in Pakistan's parliament today, in fact, pretty much right now, that could spell the early end of his term. Thousands of people descended on the capital, Islamabad, over the weekend to rally in support of both the government and the opposition. So what has caused this political crisis and where is it heading? Madia Afsal is a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings and the author of the book Pakistan Under Siege, Extremism, Society and the State. She's been uh, monitoring the situation closely and joins us now. Welcome back to our little program. No confidence motion was meant to be tabled on Friday, but it was delayed until, well, now. Yes, and, and it might be delayed further. Um, you know, some members of the government had, have indicated that they might try to have it delayed um, even further. This is part of um, one of the tactics that Imran Khan's government is using. Um, and I think there might be some behind-the-scenes wrangling going on to see if he can manage uh, to keep supporters, um, you know, of the government, allied parties, and, in fact, um, lawmakers from his own party um, uh, on his side. Uh, and uh, the bigger issue here is whether he can somehow manage to repair his um, cooling and cooled relationship with Pakistan's military and get them to um, intervene in some ways on his behalf. Madhya, the uh, opposition has accused the Speaker of buying time for Khan to muster support after a spate of defections from his party. Yes. So uh, the the so, you know the politics of this is that um, the there's an allied opposition um, which has made no secret that it wants Han out and it's tried to have him ousted a number of times. Um, this is the first time they've uh, tabled a no confidence motion, but they formed an official alliance a couple of years ago. Um, but what has changed now it, is that there are disgruntled lawmakers, as you mentioned, from Khan's own party who've indicated uh, that they're, they're you know, displeased with uh, the way Khan has governed and they might defect. Um, and there are allies of the ruling party, basically three parties um, that had formed a coalition government with Khan's party that have indicated that they might defect. Um, and currently, essentially, they're negotiating with both the government and the opposition. Let's look at uh, Pakistan's uh, economic problems. It is currently struggling with high inflation, for example. It is. Uh, and um, this is an issue the world over. You know, much of it brought out, um, brought about by the coronavirus pandemic and its aftermath. Um, uh, so, you know, there are economic pressures uh, and there's no secret that there is very high inflation. Um, and the opposition cites that um, as the reason they've uh, filed this no confidence motion against Khan now, basically saying Imran Khan has failed to deliver. But the bigger picture, why this has really taken hold uh, in, in Pakistan right now um, and why Khan might be, as you said, uh, well, Khan is facing the biggest political crisis of his career and might be ousted, um, uh, you know, based on this, is the fact that his sort of antagonistic brand of politics, you know, where he's antagonized uh, not just the opposition, but, uh, you know, those allied with him and, in fact, members of his own party, uh, has sort of come to a head. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the underlying factor that I want to highlight that I mentioned earlier as well is that 
Khan's relationship with Pakistan's all-powerful military has cooled. And that matters in Pakistan because essentially now the opposition is considered to have free reign to go after Khan. When in every crisis that he faced before this, um, that wasn't the case. When Khan was backed by Pakistan's military, it you know the opposition held back. Well, this time the military says it intends to remain neutral, leaving it to the political parties to decide his fate. Exactly. So the military says that is it is um, staying neutral in this. But that uh, is read between the lines in Pakistan as it's saying that it will not support Khan. And a lack of support for Khan amounts essentially um, uh, to to this kind of free reign to the opposition. Um, and there are a number of factors essentially that have basically resulted in Khan's relationship with the military cooling. Um, but, uh, you know, we can actually point to what Khan said recently in a, in a speech um, where he put, uh, took a very pointed dig um, at the military, not mentioning it by name, but said, animals uh, remain neutral, you know, humans side with good or evil. And that was seen as a dig on Pakistan's military. It's some dig indeed. Of course, it's a part of of a political instability in Pakistan that stretches back as far as I can remember. Absolutely. So this crisis, um, should be seen as part of that long cycle of Pakistan's uh, instability, where essentially opposition parties don't wait for elections for uh, prime ministers or indeed governments to be voted out uh, by the people. Uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that no Pakistani prime minister has ever completed a full five-year term in office, not one. Um, I should note, though, that no no one has been ousted through a vote of no confidence either. Um, uh, and so this would be a first if it, if it does happen. Uh, there have been other ways uh, that they've ousted. And in each of those instances in the past, um, essentially, you know, the opposition goes after uh, the, the sitting prime minister uh, or the sitting government. But the underlying factor always tends to be that the, the relationship of that sitting government with the, um, the establishment, which is basically Pakistan's military, has cooled. Why? The military um, remains the most powerful institution in Pakistan, even through civilian governments. As As you know, it has ruled Pakistan for about half of its um, uh, 75-year history directly. But even through periods of civilian governments, it it remains uh, powerful. Now, in the 1990s, what occurred was that the assembly would be dissolved and fresh elections would be called because the constitution allowed for that to occur. In the, you know, post-2008 era, uh, the post-Musharraf era, that hasn't happened because the uh, both the major parties, the PMLN and the PPP, essentially put in place, uh, you know, a constitutional amendment that did not allow assemblies to be di- dissolved that easily. However, the prime ministers still were not able to complete their full terms in office and on some pretext or the other um, uh, have been ousted. And that is sort of always seen as something uh, that occurs because they've lost the, the approval in some ways of Pakistan's military. He uh, Khan met with Putin in Moscow uh, just as Russian troops were invading Ukraine. How has he uh, responded to the war since then? Khan's trip to Moscow was uh, long planned and happened to coincide with uh, the the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine that very day, and and it was seen as embarrassing that that Khan was there that that very day. This is not a position that Pakistan or Khan would have wanted to to be in. Pakistan has said now under Khan that it wants an independent foreign policy, which basically it says as. Uh, a policy where it has good relationships with the major powers. So that means the U.S., but also China, which Pakistan has a very close relationship with, 
uh, and Russia. Since then, uh, since, uh, you know, uh, Khan's visit uh, to Moscow, Pakistan has abstained in the UN General Assembly vote um, condemning Russia for Ukraine, for its invasion of Ukraine. Um, but, you know, 34 other countries also uh, abstained uh, from that vote. Um, and in general, Pakistan has said that, uh, you know, a ceasefire would be in the best interest, of course, of the, you know, of Europe, but also developing countries which are hurting because of this conflict. Are there any front runners for Khan's job if and goes? I think it's really unclear what happens if Khan goes. Uh, and part of the reason is uh, that uh, Pakistan's, uh, you know, previous uh, prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, uh, has had a troubled relationship with uh, Pakistan's military. His brother, Shehbaz Sharif, who was the chief minister of Punjab and who um, is the current leader of the opposition, might be for a while, at least, um, before uh, you know, the next elections are called if there is something like a national government might be um, uh, someone who takes on the position. But what happens after elections are called, uh, it will likely be the PMLN and potentially, uh, you know, one of their uh, people who becomes the prime minister. Of course, if he stays, it will be because he'll be making some pretty big compromises. Absolutely. If he stays, he will, A, um, have made compromises with Pakistan's military, which may center around um, an extension for the current chief of army staff. It may center around, uh, you know, who they want to be the next chief of army staff. Um, and he will likely have made compromises with those allied uh, parties that are saying that they might move over to the opposition side, maybe offering them, um, uh, you know, positions that they want. He has indicated, though, uh, you know, in a fiery speech yesterday uh, in Islamabad and previously as well, that he is unwilling to be blackmailed, he says, into offering um, uh, positions, uh, in, for, you know, to stay in office. Um, so he has indicated his unwillingness to do so, though there are some members of his party, and in particular his cabinet, who might be all right with it. Medea, before you go, you've released a report this month which looks at a, a terrible aspect of Pakistan's economic relationship with China, bride trafficking. Tell me about that. Absolutely. Um, in, in 2019, uh, you know, an issue uh, really caught the attention of Pakistan's media, uh, and, and this was the issue of bride trafficking, essentially that um, Pakistani women and girls, underage girls, uh, were being married off to Chinese men who had traveled to Pakistan under the, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, guise of being workers uh, on the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is the flagship of Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. And these women were married off to these men, usually for amounts of money paid to their families, which is not illegal in Pakistan. You know, it can be considered a bride price. But once they reached China, they reported abuse, you know, being put into prostitution, oh, being forced yeah. to become pregnant, um, and really just uh, terrible uh, living conditions. And what came out was that this was part of a larger um, issue of bride trafficking that happens not just with Pakistan, but with other uh, countries, um, uh, including Cambodia, Myanmar, North Korea, Vietnam, and so on. Uh, in Pakistan's case, you know, the issue caught attention. You know, there, the, there were 52 traffickers charged, and then it just dropped off uh, the radar altogether. Uh, and, uh, you know, what I found was that this was um, because Pakistan wanted essentially to protect uh, its relationship with China. We've, uh, we've got to wind it up on that awful yes. note. But, Matia, I'll thank you for that. Uh, 
a fellow, of course, in the foreign policy program at Brookings Institution and the author of Pakistan Under Siege, Extremism, Society and the State. And it's pretty clear that whatever happens in the next few weeks ain't going to be good for Pakistan's democracy. Coming up, how Australians survived the Great Depression. friend Barry Owen Jones is about to have his 90th birthday. The Sydney Harbour Bridge has just had his and of course it's the ABC's turn to uh, mark its 90th year in operation. And while we might think we're doing it tough over the past few years, spare a thought for those around 90 years ago during the Great Depression. Now, to help us remember those dark and foreboding times and what it was like, I welcome historian Joan Beaumont back to the program. Joan has a brand new book published this week by Alan Unwin. It's titled Australia's Great Depression. And yes, Joan is Professor Emeritus of History at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU. Now, Joan, the last time we spoke, back in 2013, was about your World War I book, Broken Nation. So it's good to be talking to you about your new work on the Great Depression. Now, of course, both World War I and the Great Depression left a huge mark on the country. In fact, what a generation. They faced such a series of great challenges. Indeed, Philip, and that's really the key question in my book um, because it's the same people, the same generation who suffer in succession, you know, some three of the worst crises that Australia's ever faced. Um, the Great War then, you know, about 10 to 11 years later, in some cases even earlier, the Great Depression, which is still recognised to have been the most cataclysmic economic event of the 20th century, and then the Second World War. So, And know, I would were... also include on that list the Spanish flu epidemic. Absolutely, yes, which as it happened killed my grandfather. So, yes, the Spanish flu was, I think, a terrible, if I can call it, sting in the tail of World War One. just when people felt that, that they were going to be secure and safe. And with the war's end, along came the, the pandemic, for which they had far fewer resources to, to tackle than we did today with the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm going to ask you, Dorothy Dixer, are there any similarities between our pandemic's tough times and what uh, people went through during the Great Depression? Yes, well, although it's very hard, I think, still to really you know, interpret what happened to us in the last few years during the pandemic, I do point out in the book to, to well, one obvious similarity and then perhaps one stark difference. The similarity, I think, is the resurgence of what I might call the, the states. Um, you know, this very strong sense of state identity that the premiers articulated. We had premiers who spoke about, say, Queensland, Queenslanders as being my people. So in many ways, you know, people retreated to the local community the local or the local state in response um, to the crisis that was confronting them. And uh, that, that was common in both of the crises, the Great Depression and the recent one, I believe. Um, the great difference, I think, was the attitude of governments towards uh, supporting people during the crisis. Uh, as, as everyone will know, we had JobKeeper, JobSeeker and other, other ways of protecting people from the, the worst economic implications of the pandemic. Whereas in 1929, 
the federal and the state governments had very limited um, social welfare policies and very limited capacity to generate funds to support the unemployed. Okay, we'll get into that a little later in our, in our chat. But, of course, there's a popular view that the Wall Street crash, October 29, plunged Australia and much of the world virtually overnight into this uh, deep depression. But you remind us that Australia was an unlucky country before the US stock market crash. Indeed. And although you know, people continue to debate what caused the Great Depression around the world and in different countries, it's fairly universally agreed that the stock market crash itself was not, not the cause. It was much more the way governments and other um, financiers responded to the crisis. And as you said, in the case of Australia, um, the, really there were signs of a serious recession from about 1927 on. And this was because um, Australia was very very vulnerable to external shocks, if I could call them that, because of its dependence on the export of a quite limited number of primary commodities, particularly wool and wheat. And commodity and it, prices were down quite dramatically. That's right. They, they start to collapse in the late 1920s. And Australian governments, um, largely the state governments, had borrowed very heavily to fund public works and other projects in the 1920s and found themselves really by 1928, 1929, really struggling to um, find the uh, funds to service those debts, i.e. to pay the interest on those debts. I didn't realise that we were the biggest borrower in the Commonwealth. We, we borrowed very, very extensively, particularly on the London money market, to a lesser extent in New York. But Australia was uh, called the voracious borrower by some sceptics in London, and there was a lot of scepticism in the City of London from about 1926 on about Australia's capacity to service the huge amount of borrowings that have been that have been undertaken. You remind us that Billy Hughes had expected greater income from the war reparations, but in fact we got very little. Yes, um, the story of, of the reparations is a, is a very sorry one. Um, after World War One, of course, all the allied, victorious allied powers, particularly Britain and France, hounded Germany to pay very significant reparations, in part and largely because they themselves owed a lot of money to the United States. And I think we often don't talk much about the problems of financing fighting a war. And really from about 1916 on, the British were financing their war effort against Germany by borrowing um, in the United States. So they, of course, wanted to extract reparations from Germany and, and Germany in turn borrowed money from the United States. So you get this very destructive round robin of payments in the 1920s. And, of course, and that would continue to play out in the run-up to Hitler and World War II, but that's a, another story. So here's, here's a newly elected Labor government, the Scullin government, and he comes to office just days before the Wall Street crash. Yes, yes, there's a great bitter irony for, for Labour followers in that, that, uh, yes, two, three or four days before the, the, well, whenever you date the Wall Street crash, but October 1929. And the problem was for Scullin was that he discovered very quickly uh, that Australia was facing this problem of, of uh, international debt um, and was almost insolvent. And um, he had very few policy options in his, um, in his armour, in his armoury to, to address that problem. And we should and also remind the listener, he didn't control the Senate. So even before this issue, he was struggling to enact an agenda. Exactly, and that proved to be one of the, the very significant constraints on the Scullin government. There were two two or three really, really significant problems for Scullin. One was the City of London, which started to really tighten the screws on Australia in terms of its indebtedness. The second was that the 
the Nationalists or the Conservatives had control of the Senate and they agreed with the City of London, they thought that the only solution to Australia's problems was to balance your budget by cutting costs. So the bankers are demanding both payment and austerity measures and, of course, uh, with high unemployment, the unions were quite aggrieved. Well, certainly austerity was was what everybody accepted was the only way to to address the problem because the third player in all of this was the Commonwealth Bank, which was a kind of central bank at that time and the forerunner to today's Reserve Bank. And the director of the Commonwealth Bank, a man called Robert Gibson, rather Dua Scott, uh, was very strongly opposed to any of the measures that we might use today to address massive unemployment, like stimulus economics, which were in their infancy at that time. So really, Gibson just um, uh, had a stranglehold on the Scullin government because he and the Commonwealth Bank Board just refused to increase the supply of money in the way that some in the Labor Party thought was necessary. This is LNL, and my guest is historian Joan Beaumont author of Australia's Great Depression. Of course, there's no single experience of the Great Depression, but tell us how the impact varied. I assume that it didn't uh, much harm the very wealthy, but down the the trickle-down effect. Indeed. I I make the point in the book that there were a number of different things that might have influenced how an Australian man or woman experiences depression. One was simply where you lived. I mean, I think we sometimes think Australia is some homogenised entity, but of course the experience differed across various states. So South Australia, for example, was very savagely hit compared to, say, Queensland, which because of sugar was able to have a much less um, um, traumatic experience of the depression. But um, also... Um, it depend, Your experience depended on what industry you're working in, whether you're a professional person with capital assets and so on. The industries that were most badly affected probably were manufacturing and construction. And some of the people associated with the construction industry, which of course had relied on government contracts at the time when the governments were borrowing heavily, some of those people like bricklayers might have had uh, unemployment rates as high as 70%. The First Nation Australians were already, of course, profoundly marginalised. How did the the Depression impact on them? Well, generally very badly. Um, the interwar period um, was one where I think you can say generally across Australia the policies of controlling and segregating Aboriginal Australians were at their peak or intensified indeed. Um, so... Many of the Aboriginal Australians, of course, were already on the margins of the economy Um, and we know that um, some of the people that were most adversely affected then, as indeed, I suppose, in the recent crisis, are casual workers, those people who weren't unionised and relied on, on insecure employment. And in many areas, that's the kind of work that Aboriginal Australians relied on. So in, um, I tell the story particularly in the, in the book of Western Australia where um, there were very concerted attempts to um, more or less drive the Aboriginal Australians into government-controlled emissions and reserves. Well, yeah, the and, figures you quote are extraordinary. In 1927, 15%. By 1936, 33%. Yes, it's it's a, a period of, of of really terror, as I say, within in the book, without redemption. I think really the story of of how Aboriginal Australians were treated in these years. On the other hand, as I also point out, um, it's a period when you get, begin to see the first signs of activism, both by Aboriginal Australians themselves and by um, white Australians who are very conscious of some of the the worst aspects of Australian policies, uh, that you see them banding together and and starting the campaigns that would ultimately uh, lead to the demand for civil rights, full civil rights for Aboriginal Australians. You've made the point that we're talking of a time when the welfare state is but a gleam in the eye of uh, progressive politics. So charitable organisations have to step up. They must have been absolutely overwhelmed. Absolutely. I mean, 
The problem was that prior to the Great Depression, uh, it was assumed fairly generally that the poor could be looked after by charities and churches, and they were often one and the same. And there was a lot of prejudice amongst some of those people dispensing charity about poor people. Basically, they thought that it was their own fault that they were poor. You know, nobody talked about structural disadvantage. There were the deserving and the undeserving poor, and the undeserving were the ones who were drunk or gambled or and otherwise didn't behave according to the ethics of middle-class Protestants, um, to put it in that way. Um, and and it became very clear by even by 1928 that the charities were just unable to cope with the scale of the social distress that the depression was generating. Um, they completely they ran out of funds, they ran out of personnel because a lot of the work was done by volunteers. And so by 1930, it becomes clear that governments have to intervene. You know, um, the, the interesting thing, and I hadn't thought about this before, but you point out that what's happening on the federal level, what's happening on the state level, but the coalface was the municipal level, the third tier. Yes, and I found a lot of details about local councils and the enormous efforts that they put in. Sometimes, you know, people were very critical of them, but they did put enormous efforts in, in um, to support the um, unemployed by raising funds and, and trying to generate local work. Um, and this was particularly obvious in, in some of the working-class suburbs. Um, the real problem was that nothing they could do would generate, I mean, bridge the gap uh, between what people needed and what was available. Uh, the problem for councils in some ways, of course, was that when people started to um, uh, lose their income, they weren't able to pay their rates and were often evicted from their homes. So the councils themselves were struggling to find the revenue. I remember my parents and grandparents talking about the Susso. What was the Susso? Well, the Susso's real name was the Sustenance or Sustenance, and this was the name given to the schemes that all state governments introduced to provide the unemployed and their families with the basic essentials, largely food, um, to survive. Now, the Susso was often um, much criticised because generally it didn't take the form of cash um, it, although in some states you could get cash, but generally it took the form of coupons or rations and um, people had to get their, their, their coupons by registering themselves as being unemployed on a very regular basis and turning up at a depot where they'd get their coupons and then they'd go off to a grocer or a butcher and get what their coupons entitled them to. Well, you point out it was, it was micromanaged, overly bureaucratic and uh, deeply unpopular. Yes, well, as ever, you know, there were those who thought that people were cheating the system, rotting the system. Indeed, there were some who did that. Uh, but um, many of the unemployed found the, the business of getting their rations and having to register constantly as being unemployed and looking for work, they found that very humiliating. And so there was a lot, often a lot of tension around the depots where the sustenance was issued. And they, the, the sustenance becomes one of the sort of points around which protests by the, the working class movement uh, coalesces. And, of course, it was also a time when uh, it became common to waltz Matilda. Indeed, yes. Um, when people, many people were thrown out of their homes um, because they couldn't pay the rent or they um, couldn't pay their mortgage, which of course is a contrast with how we manage the recent crisis. And so people had the choice, or they had limited choices, I suppose they could go back and join their family. Um, so you know, children returning home to live with their parents. Um, Many of them ended up in um, sort of shanty towns that grew up both within the city and on the outskirts of cities and towns, and others took to the bush, um, went to the country, hoping that they would be able to find casual employment um, somewhere outside the cities. But some communities fear, were fearful of the unemployed, weren't they? And uh, 
you know, compassion fatigue set in. That's certainly the case. Um, you know, some of the shanty towns were viewed with suspicion by local residents because they thought it reduced the value of their properties. They thought the unemployed would be inclined to crime, to robbery. And so there was quite a stigma for some people associated by virtue of the fact that they were living in one of these camps. On the other hand, I, you know, I describe how in some cases the local authorities did support uh, the homeless in these um, camps, like Happy Valley just south around the Botany Bay area, La Perouse, because they knew if these people weren't supported, two things might happen. One was they would become the source of, of protest and social unrest, or the and or they might become ill mm-hmm. and and you'd get a health hazard, you know. So things like water were sometimes laid on and sewerage facilities were provided to some degree because there were, everyone would have suffered had the camps become really run down. There's so much to cover and no time to do it, but uh, I'd like to assure you, dear readers, that you've got to get the book and learn about the battle of the plans, austerity, versus a stimulus, these great battles that were that were raging and uh, also how we recovered from the depression and that's as complex and fascinating a story as how we got into it. Thank you very much, Joan, and congratulations on the book. I've been talking to Joan Beaumont, Professor Emeritus of History at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. The new book, Australia's Great Depression, published this week by Alan and Unwin. And, uh, well, that's your lot. On our next, Bruce Shapiro with the latest on US politics, and I'm particularly interested in what's going on in the Supreme Court. We're going to look at mercenaries, and I'm going to take you to the afterlife so you can have a poke around and see what you think of it. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.